Welcome to MI Insider, a show where Mercer Islanders give their perspectives on issues here at home and across the world. I'm Miles Avales, and my goal is to highlight the people behind the headlines. Now let's get into it. In 2015, the elementary schools on Mercer Island were bustling with students. West Mercer Elementary was lined end-to-end with portables, and the city had begun construction of a fourth elementary school to accommodate the high student enrollment. Today, just eight years later, circumstances couldn't be more different, as the Mercer Island School District faces economic challenges from the declining number of students. To find out what changed and how it impacts our schools going forward, I sat down with Superintendent Fred Rundle. My name is Fred Rundle. I'm the superintendent of our school district, the Mercer Island School District. And what are the main responsibilities that go along with your job? Um, I, I think ultimately it's about student learning, student health, student well-being, uh, and the overall student experience. And everything else emanates from there. And so when we're looking at the school district as a whole, it's kind of like being the principal of the school district instead of the principal of just a school. It's budget and finance, human resources, operations and maintenance, teaching and learning, um, and really community relations. But ultimately, it goes back to the students. So with all these different roles that you have, what would you say is your average day like? Wow, great question. I I think one of the things I love about the job is that there is no average day. Um, That's what I loved about the principalship. I commute from Issaquah, and so as I drive in every morning, um, I never know what I'm going to face. Um, I just know there will be challenges, and there will also be successes. But, you know, my phone is on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There are no days off. Um, I oftentimes tell people uh, being a superintendent is a lifestyle more than it is a job. And so my phone can ring at 5.30 um, with an urgent situation from our director of operations saying we've got power lines down and West Mercer and Island Park are without power. Or I can start my day with uh, we're short, you know, 17 subs and we're going to need coverage somewhere and I'll be going to a building. Today, my day started at West Mercer. Um, Our principal was up at camp with the fifth graders. And so I started my day as the principal of West Mercer. Uh, from there, uh, I went back to the district office, had a district meeting there. Uh, then I had a quick uh, HR meeting, then came up here to the high school where I've been meeting with Mr. Wold. I'll go from here uh, back to the office where I have a parent meeting this afternoon, uh, take care of a few more things, and I'll be back here on the island tomorrow for uh, a great opportunity for the grand opening of our South Mercer Playfield. So it's very <laughs> eclectic. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot going on. But I want to get into some of the enrollment problems that sure. the district is facing, which is kind of the reason for this podcast. So uh, enrollment at one point was around 4,300 and pretty stable. And then when COVID hit, it decreased by about 300 students. The next year, it decreased by about 70 students. And from now to the 2025-2026 year, it's expected to drop another 260, according to recent projections. So what would you say is responsible for this decreased enrollment? 
the enrollment decline that we are seeing now was predicted going back to kind of 2016-17. So we were predicted to start declining, um, but it was going to be the gradual decline that we're really experiencing now. No doubt. COVID created a cliff, if you will, or a fault, uh, similar to an earthquake where you kind of have that, that fault and it expedited some things. And so we did, we lost between 200 and 250 students. If you take that aside, Miles, there are two main drivers right now to our lower enrollment. The first one are King County birth rates. Uh, since 2016, birth rates in King County have been declining, which then impact our kindergarten classes. The second thing that's impacting enrollment right now are new home sales or or availability and cost of living. Um, for the first time since the pandemic, or excuse me, the first time since the recession back in 2007-2009 in that era, uh, home sales dropped below 300 on the island. And so we're just not seeing homes turn over and we're not seeing the the influx of new students. So those are the two primary drivers in it. And then if I kind of look just peripheral at, at a peripheral look and say, you know, what else is at play? The final wave, and you're in at Miles being here at the high school, but that final wave of very big classes that we experienced um, during the post-recession uh, growth, you're all now in high school. When our schools were big and when we were building Northwood, it was because those elementaries were jam-packed. And then the middle school experienced it, and now the high school, and the tail end of that wave is um, coming through the high school right now. There'll be a little drop off for the next couple years with the middle school, but our elementary classes are getting very small compared to where they were. Yeah, definitely. You can see that if you look at just the basic statistics, like kindergarten through fourth grade is I think a few hundred, and then middle school is a bit higher than that. And then high school is like quite a bit higher than that. So you could really see it like falling off as you get to the younger grades. Yep. But is that concerning with now that we have four elementary schools that it's actually reverting back to the way it was? Um, declining enrollment's always concerning. Um, and so let me get to the elementary schools. But the biggest reason for declining enrollment being a concern is because the greatest source of revenue for us are our students. That's how we are given money from the state. It's apportioned based on the number of students we have in the district. And then even some of our levies are attached to that. So there is a concern and we have to look at operating costs. Um, there are operating costs to running a school uh, that can be eliminated by closing it. And that's what you're seeing in Bellevue and contemplated in Seattle. And I think it's going to be the same conversation that our long range facility planning committee is going to tackle when they start meeting on April 17th, because we have to take a look at those overhead costs. And it's not just heating and cooling. But it's also some of the staff that you need, principals and custodians and food service. Um, you simply don't need as many um, of some of those positions uh, when you're operating fewer schools. So, you know, I was asked clear back in the first bond that ended up failing prior to the one that passed uh, in the kind of 2011-12 era, you know, what are my thoughts? And, you know, I, I still contend that as a principal, it's easier to run a larger elementary school than a smaller one. And the reason is you have larger PTAs, you have less combination classes, you have less uh, sharing of specialist teachers. So I think all of those things factor in, but there's also some nice parts about small schools with less students and, you know, just less crowded uh, halls. But 
ultimately will come down to the economics of what makes the most sense so we can offer the very best for our students. So essentially what you're saying is that with less students, you get less money from the state, but then you still have these fixed costs that still need to be paid that become more difficult to pay. Yep. You are onto it, Miles. And another inhibitor for us uh, is our enrichment programs and operations levy. Prior to 2016-17, we were collecting about 18, 19 million on that. We're now collecting 12 million. And that was because of some legislative action. So the double hurt for us is we have fewer dollars from our levy fewer dollars from our students, but rising costs. And our costs are related to staffing and the amount um, it costs for our employees in the region. And then obviously commodities right now with inflation are driving costs as well. Yeah, I saw in the slides presentation that was put out that $38 million is given by the state for the district to pay staff salaries and benefits, but the district is actually spending $60 million. Yes. So how does the district go about filling that gap, I guess? Great question. There are a couple different ways we fill that gap. First and foremost is our levy that I just talked about and the two levies that help us with that compensation gap. The first one is our enrichment programs and operations levy. And the second one is our capital and technology levy. And so we're able to uh, apply those levies for certain positions We also receive state and federal grants through what we call I-grants, Title I, Title II, Title III, Title IV, um, special education, and those grants then help um, make up for part of that as well. Where it gets really challenging for us and why the budget becomes an even greater problem is the state provides a recommended increase for wages called the implicit price deflator, the IPD, and the state sets that each year. And whatever they set that at, then they provide us with that increase for wages, but they only provide us for that increase in wages on the salaries that they pay for. So it's only on that 38 million that they apply their, that they apply that percentage increase. I see. So the other staff, we have to come up with on our own, plus the benefits. So going back to the cause of this declining enrollment, you said that it was already going to be declining. But then when COVID hit, it just plummeted. What is the reason for that? Why did COVID make such a big difference? I think the two main drivers on that is we have to look in the mirror and know that we had families who were upset with the way that we handled at-home learning uh, and the online learning. And then we had families who, even after they felt like they had endured that, then our return back was too gradual. And we had competitors and on the private side in particular who were moving quick, more quickly than we were. And so I think that was one wave. The other reason why we lost people is there were some who just moved. They could uh, work in other places that were pro- perhaps more affordable um, and their jobs were, allowed them to work at home or remotely. And so they took advantage of, of moving. So we saw a little bit of that, but I think that's also why we We saw a fair number of home sales, not last year, but the year before, is some of those families who were moving, we also benefited because some families were moving in. It was really last year where the home sales really slowed down. So those were the two main drivers. And and we have to now, as a district, figure out what are we going to do to separate ourselves once again as a world-class educational option for families on Mercer Island so that as they're thinking about that transition from fifth grade to sixth grade 
or eighth grade to ninth grade, or perhaps anywhere in between that they want to choose Mercer Island. And I've opened my calendar up to anybody uh, who's considering either leaving the district or coming. I will meet with them personally. What are the main things you're looking at for how to convince people or just how to make Mercer Island School District a more attractive location? I think it goes back to what my primary job is at the beginning of this interview, Miles, and it's that it's an exceptional experience for students. And we're not perfect in all areas, but when you look at the overall experience, kindergarten through 12th, our students are still going and taking advantage of incredible post-secondary options in colleges and universities. They are entering the workplace with skills and knowledge and dispositions to really uh, give them an advantage uh, as they're moving forward. We have more athletic options than almost all even 4A schools in King County. Our student participation in those sports are are high at the high school. We have an incredible radio station like this um, with a growing CTE program. Our interventions as we continue to work harder on trying to make sure that we're supporting all learners Something that I think has been a concern for some families has been a perception that we've decreased in our academic rigor. Since 2012, we've gone from about 450 AP tests taken to what will probably push over 1,200, pushing 1,300 AP tests that students will take this year. So I think our academic rigor is actually escalating. We're looking at different options for students to even move uh, further earlier and then also support learners who may uh, need extra attention and care. So we are about the whole child and we're going to continue to offer before school, after school and during school opportunities for our students. So one solution that has been proposed for fixing this budget problems that's been floated by the district is open enrollment at our schools. Could you describe what this would entail? Sure. Open enrollment is also synonymous with with something called choice transfer. Um, So some of your audience members might hear the word choice transfer and open enrollment, and they're really synonymous. And so let's just go with open enrollment. Just as the name sounds, you open the district up to enrollment, but the enrollment is from students who don't live within the school district boundaries. The last time we did this was 2008-2009 during the recession, And it was a move to increase enrollment during a time when we were also experiencing decrease, declining enrollment. So we are considering many different options of what that can look like. And I'm certainly considering some options, not for next year in terms of opening up at a wide scale manner, but considering things like city employees uh, or some who are already affiliated with the district. And then take a look next year involve our community in some discussions around the implications of open enrollment. You know, there are those who look at it as a real opportunity to to diversify the school district or bring in new perspectives and new families and ideas. And there are others who feel that their tax paying dollars go to the schools and other families coming in are then benefiting from something that they're providing. So it becomes kind of political. And I, as the superintendent, want to make sure that the decision we make reflects our community and what's in the ultimate best interest of our students. Yeah, and I think it's a testament to the quality of our schools that if you open up enrollment that you would assume that other people would want to come here. Oh, absolutely. I think I think families would definitely want to come here especially if they are, you know, looking for 
those opportunities that I mentioned that may not be available in their schools um, with the number of, for instance, athletics here at the high school or before and after school um, options for not just daycare, but enrichment, destination imagination, radio stations, band and orchestra. It goes on and on the number of uh, points of pride we have in the school district. Absolutely. And did this work particularly well when you did it last in 2008, 2009? Um, it moved the needle um, a little bit. And so, yes, it worked. Obviously, then we quickly had to turn that faucet off because we had this period of rapid uh, increase in in, st- in students. And so, um, but yes, I, you know, it, it filled a portion of the need. The, the challenge is always, you know, right now we don't need high schoolers. Um, we're still pretty healthy in high school. We need uh, elementary students. But it doesn't mean we need them in every grade level. We need them in certain grade levels, but families don't come in those perfect packets yeah. <laughs> that you need them to. So you, uh, you know, you roll the dice a little bit um, when you do open enrollment, but it's something that a number of districts do uh, around our region uh, and have for many years. So let's say that, you know, for whatever reason, this doesn't happen or perhaps it doesn't work and like the budget issues and low enrollment continue. Would closing schools ever be on the table? Uh, they'll have to be on the table if we get to that point where you've got too few students in our elementary schools to really uh, benefit from the economies of scale necessary to run an elementary school. And so it is not that it's completely off the table. I think we're going to have to look at all options as we move through the next two, three, and five years. And our long-range facility planning committee, which will, as I said, start up on April 17th, um, they will start tackling this. And uh, while not a participant on it, I'll be there for all the meetings as an observer and really getting a sense of what's the community perspective. We've got about 35 community members from all schools representing uh, as many different interests from across the island uh, who are serving on it. We have families or people who had kids in the district and are now retired and, and, but still taxpayers here all the way down to students. Gotcha. Yeah. Just don't close my alma mater, West Mercer. All right. (laughs) I'll I'll put that in the file. As they say over there, West is best. At least that's what uh, they always try to remind me of. Uh We've won like every single track meet. I think. (laughs) Mr. Allen reminds me of that often. Yeah, he's great. (laughs) And so one thing I'm wondering is, is there any collaboration with Mercer Island School District and other school districts to solve these problems? Super question. And absolutely. One of the groups that I turn to and that we've been a part of for well over a decade is uh, a group called CCS, uh, the Consortium of Collaborative Schools that involves Snoqualmie Valley School District, Tahoma School District, Issaquah School District, Mercer Island School District, and Riverview School District. And um, what it is, is it's a collaborative we have. We all chip in a small amount of money that supports professional development for staff. And so our directors of teaching and learning, they meet uh, at least once a month, if not more. And then we as superintendents and our education association presidents. So Sally Lozier, our Mercer Island Education Association president, um, she joins me in those meetings. And uh, we just had one this week and we were kicking around talking about budget and and legislation and what's happening in Olympia. Uh, And so we've issued a letter on behalf of our group to our uh, local leaders down in Olympia. 
Uh, so sometimes it's more legislative, sometimes it's more professional development, but we're all grappling with these issues right now. And uh, those are some folks that I turn to uh, for some fresh ideas uh, and new perspectives. Yeah, you said they're grappling with those issues. And some other people who are grappling with those issues could be staff and teachers. And could these people be at risk of losing their jobs if these issues continue? Um, without question. Uh, I will have the difficult task coming up here uh, in March at our next board meeting of bringing forward, Miles, what we call a RIF resolution. And what that is, is it's a reduction in force resolution for the board in order for us to reduce staff uh, who have contracts with us and continuing contracts has to go through a process called a RIF process. And the first stage of that is the superintendent bringing forward a resolution to our school board who has to pass. And the resolution does not mean that staff are automatically cut or reduced. It just gives me as the superintendent the authority to do so if I feel that it's necessary to meet our budget obligations. We have a number of other staff members who are um, on what we call limited contracts or one-year-only contracts, and those can certainly be reduced as well. Um, and we're, we're needing to do that, frankly. Last year, we let go of two assistant principal positions because of the downturn in enrollment, and I was the assistant superintendent. When I moved to become the superintendent, I did not backfill my position. So those are some examples of things we've already done in the past. And now we need to make sure that our staffing and our student numbers match. And that's going to be a really um, challenging and prickly process that, if not done with kindness and compassion, can really damage relationships in a district. So I'm committed to maintaining as strong of relationships as I can, knowing tough decisions are ahead. So when you look at potentially letting teachers or staff go, how do you make the decision of which ones? Mm -hmm. The first one are contracts that people have. If they have one-year-only contracts, those are only good for a one-year anyway. So those are fairly straightforward. After that, we have to look at um, seniority. And then we also have to look at what are the qualifications. So for instance, this isn't going to happen. But so that's why I'm going to use this example. Let's say radio dropped from the number of classes it's running now to just needing one class students just stop registering for it. Well, I no longer need Mr. Bryant for as many days as he, or as many hours or class periods that he's here. And so we'd be looking at reducing this position. There are no other teachers in the school who are radio teachers and we don't need that. And so he would be the one that we would riff and we might have him go to a point two because we only need him for one period a day. So it, it sometimes, you know, it's not always as easy as just saying, well, I'm going to take the, the, the newest teachers because I also have to think about where are the students registering. Elementary is a little different because you've got classes. So I have to look at, you know, how many third grade classes do we need across the district? How many fourth grade? How many fifth grade? If we're going to eliminate two first grades and three third grades and five fifth grades, um, then I have to look at all the teachers who have credentials for that. And then I start reducing there. So with all of this uncertainty that teachers and students may have, what message would you have for them to stay calm? Um, we are a great district. Um, I've told people that, um, I wouldn't have taken this job. Um, and, and remind, and remember I've been here for 13, this is my 14th year. So I knew exactly what I was getting into 
a year ago when the board hired me. And if I didn't think that we had an exceptional district who can achieve despite the challenges and actually excel, then I never would have taken this because the thing that they tell you uh, as you're preparing to be a superintendent is don't let your first superintendency be your last, meaning don't get into a situation where you're going to fail miserably and uh, and it's not going to work. And so I was very selective um, in, in wanting to be here at Mercer Island. Um, people can stay calm and reassured because we've got great people in place. Uh, we've got a tremendous CFO that I was able to hire uh, in September. He has helped us really get back on track with our budget team financially so that we can start to build something that's sustainable for the future. We've got incredible principals and leaders who are committed to our to our schools. We've got amazing teachers and amazing support staff um, who are highly, highly skilled and dedicated. When I walk around the schools, um, I still see people smiling despite all the challenges. And ultimately, we have world-class kids. Uh, you were at our board meeting last night receiving some really nice awards that you received at the national level. Um, you all inspire us. So we're not, we're not going to let some of these external barriers get in the way of your education. You only get one third grade year or one fifth grade year or one tenth grade year. And we've got to make the most of it every year. And that's what we're committed to doing. I am super proud to be here. I commute here willingly. And I am more excited about the future today than I even was the day I took the job on July 1st. Well said. And I think that's about all the time we have. Thank you for all of the insight you brought us today. You got it, Miles. Take care and uh, enjoy the rest of the semester. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of MI Insider. You can listen to the show live on Thursdays at 7 a.m. or as a podcast, which can be found on the 88.9 The Bridge website. But for now, stay tuned for more music and conversation that spans generations.